Okay. All right, now I invite you to have a seat and to open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verse 10. And I want to thank you, uh, first of all, for the wonderful shower that you threw for us yesterday. Uh, Your generosity was overwhelming, and our hearts were really blessed by it. And I want you to know that I prepared this sermon before that shower, and um, it makes me a little sheepish about the first point that I'm going to make this morning, but know that it comes from a heart full of gratitude and hopefully graciousness as well. (laughs) Good. Do Do you remember the story about the midnight ride of Paul Revere? Back in the late 1700s, the patriot Paul Revere saddled his horse late one night and he rode through the hills and dales of Massachusetts shouting out the warning, the redcoats are coming. He was calling out the Minutemen, colonial militiamen who slept in their clothing and had their muskets by their beds so that they could be ready to fight on a minute's notice. The British army were moving into the area to attack and Paul Revere was calling out the troops to defend it. Well, our passage this morning as we finish our short series on the book of Ephesians is like Paul Revere's midnight cry to us. Wake up. The redcoats are coming. Now, the Ephesians to whom the Apostle Paul originally wrote these words didn't need this wake-up call like we do. They... Uh, were already wide awake and they were engaged in the battle. You may remember back to my first sermon in Ephesians 1, good for you if you do remember, the Ephesians were very tuned in to the spirit world. Uh, They had past experience in the occult and in magic. And after coming to Christ, they were being oppressed by these dark spirits whom they used to serve. They felt harassed and they felt discouraged. And so Paul wrote this letter of the Ephesians to encourage them in the battle. But we live in a very different situation from the Ephesians. Most of us, this current recession notwithstanding, live in peace and affluence and ease, free from significant persecution or or spiritual opposition, at least as far as we can tell. Basically, we're asleep in the battle. And our churches in North America lack the telltale signs of war. If you go to Long Beach, California, you can see the Queen Mary, the great luxury liner which was turned into a troop transport during World War II. And this floating museum there in California offers a stunning contrast between peacetime and wartime lifestyles. I'm told that there's a partition down the middle of the ship at one point in the museum part and that on one side you can see the old luxurious dining room where the wealthy enjoyed fine china, 15 plates and saucers and a dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons. On the other side are simple metal trays with indentation for your foods. The ship had the capacity of 3,000 during peacetime, but it was modified to carry 15,000 during the war with bunks eight tiers high. What did it take to so drastically scale down the luxury of that great famous ship? It took a national emergency when the survival of a nation or nations depended on it. 
And Paul is trying to wake us up to the fact that the situation is just as serious today. I submit to you that if we look at the homes and the lives and the churches of most North American Christians today, that that we more closely resemble a luxury liner than a battleship. In fact, this reality is what dumbfounds and offends our missionaries when they come home on furlough and our brothers and sisters from the developing world when they come to visit us. North America is growing more and more secular and immoral. Africa is on fire with AIDS. Islam is aggressively advancing through Europe. Christians overseas are being persecuted and martyred like never before. Doors are opening to the gospel abroad and new believers are in desperate need of discipleship. If only there were more workers. All while we sleep. And so the first thing this passage says to us is wake up. The redcoats are coming. In verse 12, Paul wakes us up to the nature of this battle. For our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. If we today are aware of a battle at all, it's usually the battle of the culture wars. Conservatives are constantly raising the alarm about liberals, and liberals are doing the same thing about conservatives. But Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. The real battle is taking place at a deeper level and even more is at stake. The real enemy is at work on both sides of the political aisle. And even in your life and in mine. That porn addiction that we secretly struggle with that keeps us feeling defeated and guilty and distant from God. That bitter unforgiveness that we feel in our heart toward a loved one who hurt us. That lure of the advertising circulars which eat away at our contentment with what we have and, and our, suck away our financial resources as well. That cultural chatter which tells us that God is irrelevant and that the future is in human hands to make of it what we will. When I was in Romania in the early 1990s, a pastor there told me that already so soon after the fall of communism, materialism was proving to be more destructive to the church than persecution ever was. It was making God's people complacent and distracted, and it was putting them to sleep right in the midst of the battle. So Paul says, wake up. Well, once we're awake, the next thing that Paul says to us is suit up. Wake up, suit up. If we're going to engage in the battle, if we're going to resist the enemy and stand up for God's cause, then we need help. We need to be equipped. We need armor. And so Paul counsels us to suit up in the full armor of God. God's armor. We are invited to put on God's own armor. Isaiah 59, 17 tells us that God put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah 52, 7 speaks of God's messenger speeding over the mountains with beautiful feet, bringing God's gospel of peace. Isaiah 49, 2, God's 
Messiah in that verse says that God has made his mouth a sharpened sword. Isaiah 11.5, according to Paul's Bible, the Centuagint, the way that that Greek translation translates it, God's Messiah wears truth like a belt around his waist. As we join the spiritual battle today, we are invited to suit up in the very armor that God has used. Wow. Imagine what it felt like the first time that young Luke wielded the lightsaber of his father, Anakin Skywalker, that great infamous Jedi Knight. Or the first time young Frodo handled Sting, the sword of his uncle Bilbo, which had seen Bilbo through so many adventures. And now Paul offers that we can take up God's sword and suit up in God's own armor. The helmet of salvation that God donned when he liberated Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The breastplate of righteousness that God wore when he remembered his people Israel and moved in the heart of Cyrus the Persian to let Israel return from exile and to rebuild their temple and their city under Nehemiah and Ezra. The belt of truth that Jesus wore when he taught God's people, when he taught people God's ways and and when he cast out demons with authority. The shoes of the gospel of peace that Jesus ran in when he announced the good news of the kingdom of God. Put them on, Paul says. They're all available to you. I'll say it again. Wow. But what does it mean to put on God's armor? Well, when I was a kid, I had the idea that to understand the armor, you had to figure out how being saved was somehow like a helmet to protect your head and and how truth was like a belt, whatever that meant. And the armor was a lot of fun, but it never made much sense to me. But now I realize that's not Paul's point. No, the point is that he's alluding to Isaiah here when he's talking about the armor. The armor represents in Isaiah God's own character and purposes and power that God displayed when he battled his enemies and saved his people. And so Paul's point is that God wants to dress us up in his own character, his own purposes, his own power, so that we can effectively fight on his side in the spiritual battle. Because the armor represents the very character and purposes and power that God displayed when he won the spiritual war. Because God's already won the war, right? The decisive battle was fought and won when Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day. Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. We read it earlier as as the uh, opening reflection. That at that moment, all the forces of evil were defeated. It says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God has already won the war. It's just that there are still some mopping up operations to be taken care of. Some pockets of insurgency where the defeated foe refuses to go quietly. And they like to bluff and they like to bluster and they like to make mischief and generally pretend that they haven't really lost. 
And they can't hold out forever. They're bound to lose. But in the meantime, they're still dangerous and destructive. And so after God won the war, he he took off his armor and he hands it to us. And he says, here, you better put this on now. Every piece of it. You're going to need it to stand against the enemy. Because you'll never stand in your own strength. But... Equipped in my character, God says, and my purposes, and my power, you have the very best of protection. Don't rely on your own feeble resolutions to do a little bit better in the new year. Or the seven steps to bettering yourself you read about in a self-help book. Or the latest church growth strategy that's being touted by some big church somewhere. The devil just laughs at such human attempts at religion. You need God's armor on. The armor that Paul offers us here also happens to be the full battle gear of a heavily armed armed Roman soldier. It was the armor and the weaponry used for close hand-to-hand combat in those days. No wonder that Paul uses the word struggle. In verse 12, which literally means wrestle. This battle isn't the stuff of laser-guided precision bombs and smart missiles launched from battleships. No, it's war in the old style, hand-to-hand, down and dirty, strenuous, sweaty, bloody. And for such combat, all of the armor is needed. If, If a Roman soldier went to battle missing a piece of his armor, he was alarmingly vulnerable to the enemy. But a fully armed Roman soldier was known to be rock solid and nearly immovable. In fact, when a company of such soldiers stood shoulder to shoulder on solid level ground, their shields together forming a massive barricade, Roman legions were infamous for being virtually impenetrable. So suit up, church, Paul says, in the full armor of God. And then Paul goes on in verses 14 to 19 to describe the armor piece by piece. Paul starts with truth. Isaiah 11 pictures God's Messiah as wearing a belt of truth around his waist because because God is true. God's words are dependable and trustworthy and totally in touch with reality. You can count on what God says. You can take it to the bank, as they say. Now, in war, there's always propaganda and psychological warfare that's meant to weaken the enemy, to make them scared, to demoralize them, if possible, to get them to surrender or defect. And this is true in spiritual warfare, too. There's, uh, there's propaganda, and in fact, propaganda is Satan's main weapon. Because Satan knows something that we often forget. And that is that if you can control what people believe, you can control them and their behavior without ever having to pull your sword out of its scabbard. The question is, do we really believe that God is true? Do we believe that he's dependable and and that he's being truthful with us? That was the original question that Satan posed in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Did God really say that you're not to eat from any of the trees of the garden? You will not die if you eat. God just doesn't want you to be wise like he is. In other words, you can't trust God. God's not truthful. He's not good. He doesn't have your best interests at stake. He's not being honest with you. 
Well, to counteract that sort of propaganda, Paul says, put on God's belt of truth. Learn to trust that what God says is really true. That's the only way that you'll succeed in the battle on God's side. That will mean that, that we'll spend more time tuned into God and less time tuned into the propaganda that's out there. Maybe it's time to cancel the cable subscription or to put down the magazines or the novel. There's a war on after all. Well, next Paul says, put on righteousness as a breastplate. Isaiah 59 tells us that when God saves his people, he's putting on righteousness. That is, God is expressing his righteous character. He's doing the right thing. In the battle, we're going to have to do the same. I think the point here is that to stay more motivated in war, soldiers have to remember the grand principles that they're fighting for, like democracy and freedom and justice. Paul is saying here that you've got to remember and you've got to really believe that God's righteousness is worth fighting for. You've got to be so sold out on God's vision of what's right and wrong that it motivates you to keep battling. Because the enemy, with his propaganda again, is always trying to discourage you and, and saying that things would, would go better if you weren't so worried about what was right and what was wrong. You know, some Christians have the attitude that God is a party pooper. And they try to be good because they have to. They don't want to go to hell or anything. But it'd sure be a lot more fun to be running with the devil, as the old Van Halen song put it. Folks, if this is our attitude, we're not going to be any good in the battle. Because we'd really rather be on the enemy's side. Paul says, put on righteousness like a breastplate. Learn to believe in, learn to be inspired by the principles and the ideals that God stands for. Give me 100 preachers, John Wesley said, who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. So will you put on the breastplate of righteousness? Will you cultivate a passion for the ideals that God is passionate about? The Psalms tell us that meditating on God's word, prayerfully delighting in it is one great way to do this. The next piece of armor are the shoes, which are the readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, English translations struggle to know how to translate the Greek here. Some say readiness to share the gospel of peace. Others, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And I think the key to remember is that Paul is alluding to Isaiah 52 here. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings gospel. Announcing peace. Proclaiming news of happiness, saying to Zion, your God reigns. This is a picture of a lone messenger sent by God, sprinting over the mountaintops, bringing the good news of God's victory and salvation to God's people in Jerusalem. And it seems pretty clear that Paul is encouraging us here to lace up our running shoes and to be ready to do the same. And so here's the question for us. 
as we talk to our friends and our family, does the gospel still sound like good news to us? Because if it doesn't sound like good news to you, then you're not going to have any spring in your step. And, and why would they be so interested anyway? Well, the person who's most helped me to appreciate afresh what good news the gospel contains is James Chung. He's an InterVarsity College Fellowship staff director in the San Diego area. And in his book, True Story, Chung points out that many people today don't think of themselves as sinners. And so the message that Jesus saves us from our sins doesn't sound like good news to them. Right? Yet, he points out, people today, especially young people, are deeply aware that the world is broken and, and that it's deeply hurting. And, and they want hope that things could be better. And, and they're eager to participate in a solution which could really work. And Chung says, for such people, we have the best news of all. Jesus came to redeem our broken world and to put it back together again. We saw this in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Christ came to end the racism and hostility between Jew and Gentile, to create one new humanity. Christ is bringing peace and unity between people and for the whole world as God makes all things one under Christ's headship. So we can start with that aspect of the gospel, and, and that is good news to some people at least. And then we can work backwards from there to our own sins and failures which contribute to making the world such a mess that it would, really, that it would need to be redeemed in the first place. The point is that the gospel is at the same time both simple and multifaceted. There are many ways to share it. And if we're going to lace up our gospel shoes, then we're going to have to know the gospel in all of its glory and, and be able to share it in a way that feels like good news to us. And then good news to other people as well. The next piece of armor is the shield of faith. This was the tall, broad shield which soldiers used to protect themselves from arrows. These shields were covered with leather and they were dipped in water so that the burning arrows that were shot couldn't catch the shields on fire and render them useless. And faith is such a shield, Paul says. Now this is the one piece of armor that's not mentioned in Isaiah, but the Psalms are full of allusions to putting our, on, uh, put our, I'm sorry, putting our faith in God who is a shield to us. Because what is faith? It's, it's dependence, it's trust in God, it's making Him our shield. If we're going to stand in the battle and we're going to remain courageous and steadfast, then we've got to trust that God will, will back us up, that God will protect us. Because the enemy is constantly shooting darts at us, trying to get us to doubt, to doubt that God's cause is really worth fighting for, that, that, to doubt that, that God will really back us up to doubt that God is even paying attention to us. Remember David? As a young boy, he went off to fight the giant Goliath when, when men twice his ability were cowering in fear. And David's reasoning was really simple. A, Goliath is mocking God. B, if someone killed Goliath, God would be glorified instead of mocked. C, God wants to be glorified and not mocked. D, and here's where faith comes in, God is real and dependable. Therefore, 
If I fight Goliath, God will help me win. Brothers and sisters, like David, what God is calling us to is impossible. The redemption and the healing of the world is too big for us to accomplish. It's, it's above my pay grade, as they say. And the devil is shooting his darts and he's reminding us of this fact every day. And so many of us don't try really hard. We, 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 we've sidelined ourselves from the battle. But Paul says that faith is like a shield which can extinguish every one of those darts and allow us to stand and to prevail in the battle. Will you pick up your shield and, and get back into the fray? The next piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. Isaiah says that God puts on this helmet when he rides out to save his people. God is a saving God. God loves to rescue us and he has a long track record of doing so. We have to remember that God is passionate about saving his people. When we're praying and we're, we're praying for or sharing with someone and we're, we're longing for them to come to Christ, we have to remember that God is a saving God. When we're full of guilt and, and defeat and we're feeling unworthy because of our sin, we have to remember that God is a saving God. When we're in a difficult situation and there seems to be no way out, we have to remember that God is a saving God. When we're ministering to someone and their problem seems so big and it seems like there's no solution, we have to remember that God is a saving God. That brings us to our final piece, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now God hands us His own sword. The sword that Isaiah pictures sticking out of the mouth of God's Messiah. What has the power to free the captives, to redeem the lost, to cast out demons, to disarm the opposition, to heal the wounded, to extend the reach of God's kingdom? God's word does. God's word is as powerful, as sharp, as piercing as a double-edged sword. In Genesis 1, God merely spoke the word and the universe came into being. And God promises in Isaiah 55, 11, that it's always true that God's word does not return to God empty, but rather it accomplishes every purpose for which God sent it forth. My kids are Star Wars crazy right now. And they're especially into lightsabers. We've got about six of them. And I have to admit that it would be really, really cool to have a real lightsaber, wouldn't it? To, to you know, to swing it around, to see what it could do, to, to cut through metal like butter. Have you had that privilege with God's Word? Have you read it and studied it and meditated on it enough so that you can wield it? As the Spirit brings to your mind a verse or a story to encourage someone who's down or to help free someone from their bondage or to correct someone who's straying, get them back on the path, to introduce someone to Jesus for the first time, see the lights go on, 
or to ward off doubt and discouragement in your own heart and to get that peace and joy and hope to return. God's word wielded under the guidance of God's spirit is as powerful as a sword to accomplish God's purposes. Well, that's the armor and Paul ends on a note about prayer. More than a note, actually, this is the climax and the grand finale of the whole thing. Paul insists repeatedly in verses 18 to 20 that we pray all the time for everything. John Piper, the author and pastor, has called prayer our wartime walkie-talkie, not, he says, room service at the Grand Hotel. You're a soldier, remember, and so if you call headquarters and you order, order a pepperoni pizza, you might get it, but don't be surprised if your prayer isn't always answered. But if you need more ammunition or air support for the sake of the kingdom, you can be confident that backup is on its way. As Hudson Taylor put it, God's work done in God's way will never fail to have God's supply. Well, let me conclude very briefly with Paul's final point. Not only wake up, not only suit up, but also stand up. Four times in our passage, Paul repeats this command, and, and it's in the plural. It's for all of us together. Take your stand. Stand your ground. Stand. Stand firm. Like an immovable, impenetrable Roman legion, Stand firm, side by side, against the enemy. You've got the best armor available, the armor of God. We don't stand in our own strength. We stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, verse 10. So wake up, suit up, stand up. Fight the good fight until the king returns and finishes the battle and we live with him in peace forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I have to admit um, that I, like I think all of us, often doze off. And there's so much propaganda, and it's so well packaged and so persistent that I forget that we're in a battle. And I forget how serious and significant and real the battle is. I pray that you'd give all of us a fresh wake up, a fresh conviction to not just skip through life, but to learn to suit ourselves up in all of your armor and that our hearts would, would break for the things that break your heart and that we would persistently and courageously stand with you. Amen.